You're listening to TIP. My guest today is Christoph Gleisch. Christoph is the president and CIO of Harbor Capital and is responsible for Harbor's $40 billion of assets under management invested in boutique managers from across the world. Prior to Harbor, Christoph was an executive director at Goldman Sachs and managing director at JP Morgan. In this episode, you will learn how Christoph would summarize Q1 of 2023, how working with a wide array of managers helps inform his worldview, what makes a great money manager and how Christoph identifies one, factor frameworks and innovations around behavior analytics, why active ETFs are having a huge surge in popularity, the life lessons that Christoph learned after spending over two hours with Bill Gross, also known as the Bond King, just a short time after his infamous exit at PIMCO, and a lot more. I gotta say, there are some really interesting developments and strategies happening in active ETFs, and I was happy to explore them in more detail. I think you'll get a lot out of this one, so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Christoph Gleisch. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And like I said at the top, I have Christoph Gleisch here with me, and we are so excited to have you, Christoph. Thanks for coming on. Trey, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's dig right into it. This market seems a little bit bipolar as of late. No one really seems to know what to do next. I mean, a lot of bears out there thinking we're going lower. Rates are just going to keep going up. A lot of bulls saying, hey, inflation has peaked. Uh, it's going to be a softer landing. I'm kind of curious if you had to summarize Q1 of 2023, how would you go about doing that? I think bipolar is a good start, Trey. What I would say is uh, the headline is Team Soft Landing is winning. And that's what's happening in the markets at the moment. Think to understand what's happening so far this year. Let's just go back a little bit further to October of 2022 when the S&P hit its most recent bottom. And let's sort of understand where we were then. We were in the midst of a historical interest rate hike last year. You know, the Fed has effectively gone from, you know, zero to near 5% in about 12 months, which is quite some hiking cycle. And so what did that mean last year? There was obviously a lot of volatility and sentiment got very, very bearish. And look, there's different ways that you can look at market sentiment, positioning. One of my favorite and most simple is the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Fund Manager Survey. It comes out once a month. They survey some of the largest fund managers across the world consistently with the same questions. It's good quality data. So you can look at time series of responses and really learn a lot. So what did the fund manager survey of October tell us last year? It told us that sentiment and positioning was crisis level bearish. You can look at it a few different ways. If you looked at the amount of cash held on average, it was a kind of crisis point highs. So you'd have to go back to sort of a 2008 or COVID environment to see it as high. If you looked at equity underweights versus overweights, equities were underweight as they have been in prior crises. And then finally, if you looked at the economic indicators of a recession and the percentage of people that thought we were already in a recession was a reading so high. Uh, it's only ever corresponded to times that we've actually been in a recession. So what does that do? It sets the stage for, you know, markets have this habit, this wonderful habit of causing 
the most amount of pain to the most amount of people. And when sentiment is that one-sided, it is not unusual to get just a relief rally. And I think that's where things began. And it began to gain momentum. And what happened, we began to get new data points on the economy. That headline inflation was rolling over. And some of the more worrying indicators like wage inflation has actually been revised down a little bit. And so we went from a very bearish sentiment and positioning, team hard landing, and then we transitioned to sort of a softer landing. And there's more, I would say, optimism now, certainly in the equity markets, that we're going to have a soft landing. What's interesting about that last point is inflation is not going down to the degree that we need it to. And you have to assume that in order for it to get to where it needs to be, a lot more pain does need to come, right? So what are the bulls really standing behind knowing that there's probably something that needs to happen for the Fed to continue with their mandate? Look, I think what the bulls are standing behind is, and you know, what's been surprising to the upside this year has been how strong the economy has remained and how high nominal growth still is. Ultimately, nominal growth drives nominal wages. And I, there was a fear that the economy was headed for a, I think, an abrupt hard landing. And the debate three or four months ago was about when the recession is going to hit. If it's not already here, is it going to be Q1 or Q2 of this year? Clearly, it isn't going to be Q1 and it's unlikely going to be Q2, if at all, this year. So I think just, again, that what the bulls are kind of getting behind is it wasn't nearly as bad as what was being priced in at the time. And as I said, some of the wage pressures that were running in the high fives at the time, wage inflation was running five and a half, six percent. And you actually had some downward revisions to historical data and suddenly it was running in the fours again. So I think there was this, um, there's this phrase that's been used. I'm not sure if you've heard it, the immaculate disinflation. And I think the bull argument is that we were going to have this immaculate disinflation. You marry that up with the pessimism earlier, you set the stage for a pretty strong rally, which is what we've seen. I think a, a soft landing, you know, inflation disappearing, going back to 2%, I think it's fanciful thinking, frankly. I mean, inflation is here. We see it every day. We see it in the grocery store and you see it in the numbers and whether it was last week's PCE data, European inflation came out this week, surprising to the upside. If you look at the employment payroll numbers, I think we have a sticky inflation problem. And I think going from a nine handle down to a six or a five is going to prove to be much easier than kind of going from here back to back to 2%. So I think we should get used to higher levels of stickier inflation and the volatility that that's going to bring in markets. And I think we're going to have shorter market cycles within that. And I think what we're experiencing at the moment is, uh, you know, an, an upward trend, but um, I would caution to believe that we're at the beginning of a, you know, a new multi-year bull market. You mentioned jobs and the economy being strong. One of the biggest surprises it seemed was this January report showing 517,000 jobs created and unemployment hit a 53 year low. So that just kind of leads us to believe more inflation, or at least it, like to your point, it will be stickier for a amount of time as long as people are employed and have the money to spend on these goods and services to keep these prices up. My question is, 
beyond that, was there anything else that stood out to you as being uniquely surprising? So yes, there have been some things that have surprised me. And if I was going to pinpoint one, I would say it's the economy's ability so far to absorb this interest rate shock that we've had. And actually the economy appears more resilient to interest rates than I think I thought and probably what a lot of other people thought. I think if we had sat down a year ago and said, okay, over the next 12 months, base rates are going to effectively go, let's round up, you know, go from zero to five. Okay, we're at 475. What's going to happen 12 months out to the non-farm payroll number? You'd say it's going to be in the gutter, but it hasn't. We had a, you know, one of the strongest monthly payrolls in recent history. So there's a, there's an underlying resilience here still. And what sort of caution to me a little bit is how much of this is just a lag indicator. It's that because we haven't been, the last cycle wasn't a typical kind of binge credit cycle, generally balance sheets, certainly household balance sheet post the financial crisis are in a much better shape. You know, the, coming out of the GFC, it was all about deleveraging the household balance sheet. That's effectively done. Well, we haven't now had that releveraging. And so it's make, it seems to be making the economy, the consumer more resilient to interest rates. And so I think that's the thing that surprised me and why we're watching the incoming data very, very carefully. So there's a phrase I heard recently, which I think really rings true today is that we all, we hear it like you've got to be data dependent and that's generally true always, but I think especially so now, but in an era where we need to be data dependent, we don't have data that's very dependable. And you see this with a lot of revisions happening two, three, four months after the effect. And there's clearly an echo, I think, left over from COVID in this respect. There's an echo left over from the supply chain dynamics and, and what was ultimately transitory inflation. Because let's be clear, some of the inflation that we've had is transitory. And so trying to figure out and read through the noise of the data is really, really critical. And it makes it even harder. So I think at the moment, the markets are very hard to read. Um, they're always hard to forecast, but they're incredibly hard to read at the moment. And so sort of any, any predictions your listeners here should be taken with a, a decent dose of humility at the moment. As far as data is concerned, I mean, the idea that our inflation numbers come from a bunch of folks imputing data, you know, manually, basically out in the field from the BLS in 2023, it seems like, oh my God, how much room for error could there be in something like that? Exactly. So your specialty is placing managers, finding these synergies between the strategy and a person to actually manage that strategy. And you're dealing with different experts in different fields all day long. I'm kind of curious how that actually helps you inform your own views on the economy and the markets, especially when I know sometimes it can be an alphabet soup when you hear so many different opinions coming from so many different directions. So how do you navigate that and filter through that to develop your own? So firstly, you know, everybody talks our own book to a certain degree. So if you're building a multi-asset portfolio, you know, we're in a fortunate position here at Harbor Capital. We work with managers from all over the world across public markets, equities, fixed income and commodities. So you hear a range of views. And I would say over time, you begin to get a sense of when a manager is particularly bullish or bearish versus his or her own style and what they're seeing. And I think it's 
it's a really helpful input into our overall process. You know, we have our own proprietary models where we look at where we are in the market cycle, you know, what's going on, what's the strength of the economy, where valuations are. But I think where it can be really helpful is around some of those more kind of opportunistic ideas or trades or shorter term investments as well, where people can come and they can be pounding the table and, you know, lay out in their background experience set. They haven't seen something like this in pick a number, 10 years, 20 years. And you've really got to like listen into those little nuggets and realize when they mean something versus when a manager is trying to talk their own book. And it can be a really valuable input. It's kind of reminding me of, um, I think Ray Dalio calls it believability at Berkshire Hathaway, just having these different experts who can opine on certain things and you almost using that merit-based system to develop your own thinking. Is that similar to kind of how you would look at it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's a hard one, uh, Dalio, to argue with in terms of the believability, but I, I think that's right. Another indicator is we can, you know, look what the managers are doing. We have an incredible amount of data and as well as listening to them, we can see what they're doing. And on the margins, that can be a really strong signal. So if you have a manager that is normally higher in quality, but on the margin, they're buying cyclicality, you know, the bar for that manager to buy cyclicality is really, really high. And if they're going to be deviating towards that, you can use that data. Well, why is that? What are you finding cheap about cyclicality? And you can sort of, sort of start to uncover a thesis there. Another one would be, you know, market cap going up and down in market cap. You can get a good read on what's happening there. And the other one is, um, the regions. You know, occasionally you get U.S. managers that can buy some international stocks and vice versa. And, you know, if an international manager, despite optically cheap valuations, is still buying U.S. stocks, it's hard to make a compelling argument that you've got to be leaning into international diversification when that's happening or vice versa. So what I'm really intrigued about, and there's a lot actually throughout this conversation we're getting into, but one thing that stood out to me about what you've done or what you do is you create or have created a systematic way to recognize luck versus skill with these managers that you're placing. I imagine there's some quantitative element to this or something that we can really sink our teeth into here. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about how you've developed that system and what went into it. For sure. So I'll start at the top with... In investing, the noise to signal ratio is very high. There's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of short-term noise. And what we try and do is focus on what is ultimately signal and what is noise. And for that, you know, I studied science background. You can figure out what, what are some apparatus that you can look at that can help you, you know, reduce that noise. And if you like focus in or zoom in or amplify that signal. So that's sort of at a high level, what we're dealing with that very, very high noise to signal ratio. Let me give you an example of a study that we did, which I think illustrates this point really, really well. And I'll, I'll explain it in detail because uh, it had some pretty cool conclusions. So we created something called the crystal ball portfolio. Okay. This is a hypothetical portfolio. The results of this portfolio are impossible to achieve. So just from a, my compliance hat on, this is a thought experiment, but you can learn some practical tips from a thought experiment. So we created the crystal ball portfolio where for a period of 30 years, three zero, we picked with full hindsight, 
as if we had a crystal ball. What are the 20% best performing managers going to do over the next five years? And we held them hypothetically, right? We held a basket of these 20% best performing managers. You hold them for five years and you know at the end of that five-year period, they're going to be the best performing ones because that's why you picked them. And then you reallocate your portfolio for the next five years and repeat and repeat and repeat and then create a chain link of those returns over a 30-year period. So it's the 30-year crystal ball portfolio reconstituted every five years, knowing ahead of time what the best managers are going to be. Okay, it, like I said, an impossible portfolio to achieve. What on earth is the point of doing that? Well, you can look at it as, if you like, a, a very upper bound of what really good managers can do. So if you look at that portfolio over a 30-year time period, we did this in US, so US core growth and value. We mixed them all together. So you even get the benefit of picking the right style, which is pretty hard to do. And this portfolio over the long run outperformed the S&P 500. Well, duh, it should. It should outperform it by a lot. You've got a crystal bull and it outperforms the S&P 500 by about 400 basis points. It was 396 or 397 basis points per year. I can't remember the exact number, but let's just say 400 basis points per year, which is good. So if you can find a manager that you think can do 400 basis points a year, like buy that manager and hold it for the long run. But what was really interesting about this as well is what about, did it underperform? You know, you, you, you've got a crystal ball here. Does it underperform? And the answer is yes. And probably more than you'd think. It underperforms almost one year in four. So if you look at all the rolling 12-month windows over a 30-year period, almost one out of four of them is negative. And that surprised me. I had assumed it would have been a lower level of underperformance because you've got a crystal ball. And then the last thing is the longest period of underperformance it had versus the index was almost five years. So a really interesting exercise to go through. And for us, it helps kind of like set expectations at the beginning and set realistic expectations at the beginning. And so... We have realistic expectations. And in, in terms of like, how do we systematize our process? Yes, there's a heavy degree of quantitative rigor that goes into it, but it's really marrying quantitative rigor and quantitative rigor. So I'm lucky we have a team here of professional researchers that all they do day in and day out is research managers. They interview managers, they go looking around the world for managers, they stay on top of the managers that were invested and it's their calling. It's what they live and breed every single day. What we also have is we have a, an excellent data team. Our industry, one thing our industry is not short of is data. And there's some really valuable information inside of that data. And you just need to have the right kind of tools that, to break it apart and see kind of what's the information in there. So let me be a bit more specific is we apply what we call our alpha edge framework. And one of the things that we look for and that we write down before we make any investment is what is the edge of the managers that we think we have. I'm surprised how few people do that, by the way, and I would advise everybody in investing. What is the edge that you think you have and what is the edge that you think the manager has that you're going to invest in? And then quantitatively, what we do is we have what we refer to as a factor framework. And what do I mean by factors? So whenever you make an investment, let's just keep it more sort of more simple in, in equities. If you buy a company, you buy a stock, or if you buy an ETF, or you buy a mutual fund, actively or passively is going to be a basket and aggregation of those stocks, there's going to be certain factor characteristics that they have. 
They might be more leaning into value. They might be more leaning into quality. They might be more leaning into growth. They might be high beta, low beta. And what you find is you can use statistical techniques to disaggregate a manager's portfolio into different factors. And there's normally about three or four that kind of explain the majority of their risk and return, frankly. And so what we try and do is create a factor framework to understand almost kind of like what's the manager's DNA through factors and what are their exposures to them through time? What are the expected returns on those factors over time? Do they mean revert? Do they persist? And then what's left over at the end is called the, in a model sense, the unexplained bit, or what we would describe it as the idiosyncratic bit, or what our industry would describe that as, as the alpha bit. So when we are looking at a prospective manager, we try and take that historical performance and we try and break it down into its component parts. We try and look what's factor-based. We build expectations over those factors and we try and look what's idiosyncratic and often or not more than a hundred percent of the returns of managers in general is factor-based that actually the skill bit is actually negative. It's kind of a bit depressing, but in our view, if you can find a manager that has a positive idiosyncratic alpha, that's the bit that's more due to skill. That's the more valuable piece that you should pay for. And I think one of the reasons that active management, the industry is in not great shape at the moment is because it overcharges for what it provides. And it really has been overcharging for factor-based exposures and charging as if it's been kind of skill. And so we're really, we really geek out on that as a research team and try and use all of the techniques that we can to measure that stuff as precisely as we can. And we just think by doing so, it skews your probability for success towards the right, which is what we're trying to do. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. 
Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. When I was learning more about you, what was coming to mind was, for me, was Rick Rubin, the famous uh, music producer, who surprisingly claims that he knows nothing about music or even how to play instruments. And his skill is to essentially bring out the best and most authentic version of the artist he's working with. It's a counterintuitive example, but it highlights kind of a different skill set. And even though I know that you know what you're doing when it comes to investing in markets, the question came up for me, is there a different skill set that you believe you've developed over time? to actually place these managers that's pretty different from the actual act of investing itself. I invest in managers across different asset classes, like I said, fixed income, equities, commodities. If I had to build, you know, from scratch my own commodities portfolio, I wouldn't do a very good job of it. But yet I can pick, you know, I think I can pick a good commodities manager. So I think there's definitely a parallel there. Why is that? So I studied physics undergrad. I'm not a physicist. If I had tried to be a physicist, I would have been a poor one, but it did give me a certain skill set and a distant, I think a different perspective that I've come to appreciate the more I've been in this industry. So I've been picking managers now for about 20 years and the, the more I do it, the more I realize what I do is because of my three year bachelor of physics degree at Bristol university. So it's taught me to have a, you know, a very open mind, I think in, in, you know, in physics, you have to be open-minded and you have to think about things from first principles. And so I've always questioning like why and trying to understand what people do from a first principles perspective. So I think that's certainly one element to it. The other element I would say is I'm a pretty transparent person. And what I like to do with managers, quite, what quite a lot of people that do my job do when they go and sit with a manager and they understand and try and understand what a manager does, they just let the manager talk at them and they don't kind of react to anything that they kind of say. And that might work well for some people, but what I found really helpful for me in picking managers is by being transparent back with them and kind of riffing with them. If I can steal that music analogy in the moment, you know, when they're talking about a particular area of their portfolio or a thought process or a company that they're buying is to, you know, pull on that as a thread with them and it gets them to relax, I think, and open up as well. And so creating, I think, just a pretty open environment, a pretty relaxed atmosphere. I'm not a big fan of like, hey, I'm interrogating, you know, a manager like I'm the Secret Service. You know, I, I want them to be the best version of themselves. And so I try and create a pretty relaxed atmosphere when I'm talking to these managers. 
But I'm always listening and I'm, I'm always observing 24 seven, you know, how they're reacting, what they're saying, you know, trying to read the, the cues that they're presenting. And so, yeah, going back to the, the previous question, it's really a combination of things that are deeply tangible, like performance, track records, statistical techniques that you can kind of use to break apart and get information from, but then also a focus on the intangibles, um, focusing on the people, their story. How did they get to be across the table from where you are today? You know, how, who did they learn how to invest from? What kind of biases does that give them? And doing that in a, in a transparent way. And then I'd say the last thing is, you know it when you see it, when you've been doing this enough, what good really looks like. Most managers, by definition, are average, right? There's only few exceptional money managers. And so we need to have the discipline that most of the people that we meet with aren't, we're not, we're not going to invest with them. So if I meet with a hundred managers, we might invest with one. It's, you know, it's a numbers game to a certain degree as well. But yeah, hopefully that gave you a sense of how I can sort of bring my own personality to this, but it's a, it's a difficult question to give a sort of a concrete answer to, but a really good question. There's a saying, right? That everyone's a genius in a bull market. Is there something to that? Or is there any other way you maybe grade the managers as they're going through a difficult market? And look, the temptation is always going to be there. The trick is to kind of control for it. And our, look, our managers are you know legally in charge of the day-to-day operations of the fund. So they get on with it and we keep you know a close eye on exactly what's happening inside our portfolios. I would say as a general matter, I always remind myself of this. Whatever I'm judging or looking at is with the benefit of hindsight. And when that decision was being made, it was, it had no benefit of hindsight. It was being done with foresight. And Howard Marks from Oak Tree has said this point many times in his memos, but he says, never judge a decision by its outcome. And you look at that and you think, what does that mean? Well, there's many, when you make something or make a decision with imperfect information, which frankly is what investing is all about, because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. No one had a crystal ball. By the way, even if you've had a crystal ball, it's less valuable than you would have thought. But you need to have a, a degree of humility and just always remember if you're looking at something after the fact, you have the benefit of hindsight and the person that made the decision didn't, right? So I, I, I kind of watch, rinse and repeat and tell myself and my team that all the time as well. And just going back to, you know, the, the framework, the factor framework, it's really important to, to do this stuff as well because it helps keep you grounded through times of volatility. Sometimes the volatility is a premium that the market's paying you, like a pain premium, but unless you're willing to accept it, you're not going to earn good returns from the market over the long run. There's kind of, as diversification aside, that really is the only free lunch that I've found in investing or in life, actually, um, that you just, you need to understand going into any investment that there's going to be periods of volatility. And the only guarantee I think we can make as an industry is at some point will underperform for clients and we need to do as good a job as possible of kind of like navigating them through that volatility. And so when you understand the factor footprint of your managers and what those have been over the longer run, how have they paid off or detracted over the long run? How are they doing today? It helps inform you make less reactionary decisions. I think the one behavior in our industry that is really hard to fight against is overreacting to the short term because it gets emotional. Like when you underperform or when you pick a manager underperforms or invest one, you get angry when they're not doing well in the short run. But often, more often than not, 
the basing uh, an investment process on some kind of short-term performance indicator is a disaster. The 2020s as well are proving to be a very different decade. The post-financial crisis period, the 2010s, was really tough for fundamentally oriented active managers. And so one more point I'd like to make is um, just quite how different the 2020s are proving to be versus the post-financial crisis era of really the 2010s and how that's presenting itself and manifesting itself to investors and to markets, to active managers. If you look at the post-financial crisis era, we had a decade plus of zero interest rates, quantitative easing, you know, debt deleveraging, and you had uh, central banks across the world just flooding the system with liquidity to prop it up and you know create the wealth effect through the wealth channel. And that was a very you know, it didn't, it almost didn't matter what you bought, just, you know, buy risk assets, own them, you know, buy bonds, you know, you're going to make money from the duration, from the fall in interest rates, buy um, equities, you're going to make money from the same thing, from a falling uh, equity risk premium, from stable and sort of growing earnings as well. And really what the 2020s have reminded us of and brought back is volatility and uncertainty. And it's really shattered that paradigm that we were in before. Um, so we've got the return of volatility. We've got the return of inflation. We've got the return of interest rates. Again, I think for the first time that I can remember in the US here, the treasury curve is out, is above 4% wherever you look, which would have seemed absurd to have said that just a year ago. And you have this notion of two-way risk again, and um, you have more idiosyncratic risk as well. It's less of a sort of an asset allocation or what's happening in certain factors. Like what's going to happen at these companies as they're dealing with the cost of capital again is not going to treat all companies equally or fairly. And so what that has meant in markets and in active management, particularly that's my area of expertise, is more managers have outperformed. And if you look at the industry stats as well, they're much, much higher than they have been in 10 or 15 years now, which I think is an interesting trend to keep an eye on. But I would just say on that is, you know, ultimately active management, I think is, is a zero sum game over the very, very long term. So yeah, interesting. Do you think that last point is because there's finally a cost of capital to, to work from to a degree, right? To, to use a discount rate instead of that's not zero, right? Where the prices of assets can basically go to infinity. I mean, we're now in a world where we actually have discount rates that we can apply and therefore giving active managers potentially an edge? Absolutely. I think what, I mean, what is capitalism without a discount rate? It's fundamental to the system on which it operates. And I, I'm not going to criticize, you know, the Fed for what they did. I think they did a great job coming out of the depression. And so it's, it's less of a judgment call, but it's so fundamental to the system that as that, as we reverse out of that era, there's going to be all sorts of secondary and tertiary effects and consequences from that. I, I read another quote, and this one was from Seth Klarman, Baupost, and he said, um, zero interest rates is like sand at the beach, gets everywhere. You know, when you come back from the beach, you're like, how'd sand get in there? It wasn't even at the beach. And I think there's a degree of truth to that in investing and with interest rates. And, um, you know, I guess there's a lot of sand to clean up, right? And you can never get it all. And so that cost of capital just works its way down the, the entire system. And if you think about a being a CFO in a company and a company's thinking about a new growth project or an investment and their cost of capital is effectively zero 
you know, not quite zero because they, there's always a credit spread that you've got to pay on that, but just near uh, zero. Or if it's suddenly looking at like seven or 8%, which it probably would do today with where interest rates are, it creates a, a real cost for that company, but it also creates an opportunity cost for that company as well. So that gets, uh, has to get factored in, you know, obviously a company's the way it's financing itself, you know, mar margins can disappear and turn to losses when you start to have to fund yourself at that much, much higher rate. And so that's, if you like, the real economy effect. And then if you look at the market, the secondary market or the primary market, you look at investors, if they're demanding less on their return and that bleeds through to like equities, it distorts the whole incentive structure of the market as well. Because if you're not having to earn you know, a strong cash flow. If it's everything's manana, 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 then, you know, incentive structures reinforce behaviors. So you're going to get people and uh, market participants chasing projects that necessarily they wouldn't do. And, you know, I think that's something that you need to think about as well. That signal that those markets then send back to those kind of corporate behaviors. And so that's all going to take time to unravel. You know, I mentioned how surprised I've been about the resilience of the economy in the face of higher interest rates and how they've managed to absorb that. I wouldn't declare that as a final victory yet. I think it's an ongoing process. And I think that's happening at the company level as well. But ultimately, companies that are run with more discipline, with more fiscal prudence, with better balance sheets, with higher quality, are going to benefit in that type of environment. And I would say that's more where active managers spend more of their time. So I, I, I definitely think that is a, a really important factor to watch how that impacts, you know, individual stock returns over the coming, you know, few years. Well, speaking of factors, I, we've talked a lot about your factor framework and I know that you've been recently working more on behavioral analytics as well through with the fintech firm to break down active managers into behavioral or decision alpha instead of just portfolio alpha, which I think is really interesting as well. And I know everyone listening to this would love to learn how to make better decisions. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about the research you are discovering through this process. We've partnered with a fintech firm called Essentia Analytics run by Claire Finn Levy. He's a former portfolio manager herself. And we, this is newer for us. And if you think about some of the things that I've said about focusing on managers that have an edge, you know, one of the traits that we look for above all else is continuous improvement. And if we look for managers, we, we think managers need to continue to invest in themselves and improve, or at least seek to improve year after year after year, because investing is a really competitive industry. And if you don't do that, you're going to go backwards. So we hold ourselves to the same standard. So we're continually investing in ourselves. And if you look at the evolution of assessing performance, disaggregating luck from skill, and I look at the evolution of this industry over probably a 30 year period, we've gone from looking at just returns, like naked returns. If they're high, there's skill. If they're low, there's stupidity. I suppose that's kind of like the, the most rudimentary scale. And then as our developing of markets has changed, you know, um, attribution came along and we started to disaggregate returns into things like allocation decisions and stock selection decisions. And it was the next step, the next rung on the ladder of our understanding. And then came along and what I spent about 10 years ago developing was this factor framework that we talked about earlier. I was like, okay, there's something more than just stock selection and allocation. It's understanding factor biases, stripping those out, what's left over and alpha. 
And then I think the continuation of this R now I'm really excited about is behavioral decision analytics. And it's looking at what decisions the managers have made and how has that impacted their performance through a different lens, through a different dimension. I'll give an example of where this is really helpful. So if you speak to and if your listeners have heard this and, you know, investing in the past, we'll do quarterly calls with all of our investors and we'll speak to our investors and they might say something along the lines of, oh, I added to stock. X, Y, Z on weakness because there was no news and we're still convicted in the stock, the thesis, long-term thesis intact. And for whatever reason, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Market decided to sell it off. And, um, you know, we wanted to add to our position. Like, okay. You know, sounds credible. Okay. How do I like test it? If you hear those type of things frequently, what Accenture Analytics allows us to do is to look at in a portfolio level, like what stocks did a manager buy? So let's just say it's a 30 stock portfolio. What stocks did you buy? Obviously matters, but you can use Princeton attribution and stuff like that. That's not the most helpful, but then, okay, when did you buy that? What was your position size? How did you build that position size? How did you exit? When did you exit? And did you, you know, sell all at once or did you gradually kind of sell? There's tons of different decisions going into this portfolio and some managers do a better job of making these consciously and some of them do it subconsciously and they have a bit of a, you know, a feel for it. And so what Accenture has allowed us to do is just be a bit more scientific with understanding some of those biases. And so then what we can do is we can go back to our managers because we can, we have all of this data on them and we can say to them, you know how you'll often tweak a position size or tinker with a position size. We've looked at every stock you've held on every day over the last 10 years. And you know, by tweaking with those positions, you've destroyed 35 basis points of alpha or you've created 20 and you can start to quantify those behaviors and then managers can understand what they're good at, where they're adding value and where they're destroying value. And you see some, you know, on in, in general, managers are bad at exit timing in our industry. Um, but what a lot of them do is they start to sell the position early and then the stock can kind of unravel a little bit and then they kind of exit the position and they're ultimately late with their exit position. But when you can see that they've started to reduce a position earlier, there was obviously a signal that they looked at that was meaningful enough for them to start to reduce the position size. But for whatever reason, they didn't go the whole way and start to sell it. And so you can start to present this information back to them. They can reflect upon it and then use it in ways to improve their investment process. I'm a real you know, big believer in this continuous improvement. It is critical to, to do. One of my bugbears of our industry is this notion of consistency through time. And uh, consistency equals no innovation, no improvement. And what in what other industry is that okay? So like a, a atypical consultant, so I've heard, I've never been one, I've got nothing against them. I'm repeating this, you know, somewhat secondhand. But what I've heard is the kind of the, the archetype consultant kind of may go through a checklist. And one of those things will be, have you made any changes in the last year? And changes are, are generally thought of as bad. And I'm like, well, imagine if I pulled out an iPhone from 15 years ago and held it up and said, you know, that technology you've had, 
like it hasn't changed for the last 15 years. You know, we, we learn about the world. We learn about ourselves. We learn about the markets every day. And the art of a great manager is not to reject that, it's to compound that knowledge into improvement. And it, for us as allocators and investors, it's us to almost from a governance perspective, um, as a fiduciary to hold managers accountable to that. And so I couldn't disagree with the kind of the industry convention more strongly on this point. That's why when we're looking at our managers, we are always asking them, like, how have you improved your process in the last 12 months? And some of them, when you ask this question, will, you know, they'll grab their kind of shirt of their neck and they'll squirm uncomfortably because they're not sure what they're supposed to say. Well, A, just always tell the truth. And then B, you should be striving to improve every, every year. And that's, so that's what we spend a lot of time on when we're working with our managers. It's like that uh, Churchill quote, right? When the facts change, I change my opinion. I don't know what it is about human beings. We're just such linear thinkers that, I mean, there's nothing in our day-to-day -day lives that is up and to the right all the time. And yet that's how our brains just expect, we expect that out of almost everything. It's just, it's a little bit ironic. When you're talking about decisions and uh, quantifying them, et cetera, what was coming to my mind, I'm kind of curious to get your, your feedback on it. It's just the where the intuitiveness and the and making decisions from your gut might play into all of this right i'm reminded of the george soros book where he states i rely a great deal on animal instincts when i was actively running the fund i suffered from backache and i used to i used the onset of acute pain as a signal that there was something wrong in my portfolio and whether that's true or not you know remains is could be debated but i'm just kind of curious about where that factors in when we're getting too intellectual about uh, analyzing someone, where does that play into the mix? So it's a great quote. And I've heard that as well. The back pain, uh, the portfolio is not set up right. There's very few investors that can do what he does very, very well. I think Stan Druckenmiller is another one that has this amazing ability to synthesize the moment of or, or the fears of the day and position around that and kind of call the markets. There's another one who I invested with in the past, Alistair Hibbert at BlackRock, who I believe is still there running hugely successful hedge fund franchise now. And they have this ability that can feel like gut feel. And it is, I think, a little bit having a feel for the markets, but most investors are better served by having a disciplined process um, that they stick to and they adhere to and they, you know, improve over time. I'm not saying those, those folks don't, I'm sure they have a process as well, but they just have that innate ability as well to read the markets. I think one thing that you need in investing is you need conviction. This is not a role. If you suffer from analysis paralysis, uh, markets are not a good place to hang out because you can find anything, something to kind of confirm your own behavioral bias that you may have. And so when I invest with managers and when I ask my team to make recommendations about investing or divesting from managers, it has to be done from a place of conviction. And I think there's that, there's that bridge between looking at all of the numbers, the analysis and being as rigorous as possible and as scientific as possible. But there is definitely, um, I don't shy about saying this, there's a gut feel to it. And that gut feel is based on, it's not guesswork. It's, I think it's a, almost like an, an algorithm happening in your mind where you've pattern recognition, where you've seen certain things before you mentioned human beings are really linear thinkers. Some of that pattern recognition is non-linear thinking and it's like, okay, where have I seen something similar? And, but ultimately you have to make a decision and you have to invest with conviction, whether you're buying individual securities 
ETFs, active products, passive products, um, it's a key part of any successful investment process. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. I know you've also recently partnered with C Worldwide, which is a Copenhagen-based firm, and they uh, been run- they've been running this very concentrated strategy of only 30 companies at a time in their portfolio for, I mean, decades now to incredibly successfully. I think they're beating their benchmark by over 6%. And CEO Bo Knudsen describes their ideal companies as those who have a, what he calls a permanent right to win. And I don't know if that's an original quote from him or he took it somewhere, but that was the first time I'd heard of it. And I'm kind of you know, when I hear that, I quickly think of brand and pricing power and all these other things that might go into a permanent right to win. If you use that framework to apply to managers as you're placing them, could you come up with an idea of what is an example of a manager who has a permanent right to win? It kind of arkens back to what we were talking about with these characteristics of great managers, because I think for those of us listening, we're all trying to be our own managers to some degree, or, or we're looking for a great manager for us. And I think just knowing what to look for is really kind of evergreen here. So wondering what a permanent right to win might look like. So yeah, it's, I think it was his phrase originally. I certainly haven't seen it before as permanent right to win. And you're right, when you think about it as businesses and investing in equities, brand and pricing power, sustainable growth 
kind of really shine through as those have got to be some of the characteristics. So how do you translate that to, to managers? First thing I would say is if a manager thinks they have a permanent right to win, by definition, they don't. It's those managers that have that innate paranoia, I think stand the best chance of having a permanent right to win. So I'll go through a few of the things that we would look for that I think would be suggestive of, you know, superior longer term performance over the long run. And we talked about some of these along the way, but let's just hit them. So number one is, you know, an edge. A manager has to have a discernible edge that they can do better than the market. And that edge needs to be, you know, repeatable. That doesn't mean every year in terms of performance, but a repeatable edge that they're trying to exploit. And there has to be some kind of moat around that edge that it's just not going to be like eye shared or vanguarded away eventually. And so just spend time on, on asking. And as an investor, if you're an individual investor or a professional investor, I challenge you all for your investments to write down what that edge is. And if you can't, it probably means the manager doesn't have one. So that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing is, again, I, it comes down to this culture. So we look at you know, I talked about the tangibles, performance and, you know, breaking apart factors and idiosyncratic returns, all really, really important. I also talked about intangibles. I think what gives a manager the permanent right to win is um, world-class intangibles. What does that mean? Culture, I think. Culture is ultimately a function of the people, but I think culture can pass down from generation to generation. So I'd say culture is even more important than people, even though it's a byproduct of it, if that makes sense. And so what we look for from a culture perspective is our tagline that we look for is a culture of continuous improvement. We write it down. We look for evidence. We ask the managers about it. And, and we, as I said, we, we demand that of ourselves. Can we find a manager that's going to continue to improve? is going to continue to compound their own learnings and their knowledge over time. If the answer is no, you probably don't want to invest with that manager because whatever it is that they're doing now, if it's working, it's probably going to erode away, you know, competition, competitive capital is ultimately going to erode that edge away. And so, yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about that as well. Other things from a culture perspective, I think are really important. We would prefer a team-based culture than an individual sort of star PM approach. There are some star PMs. We've quoted quite a few of them throughout this recording, but they're, what they'll probably all say is they've got a great team behind them as well. And so we want to see cultures that generally have teams of experts, that they have cultures of debate. One of the cultural traits that we look for is uh, the phrase culture of psychological safety. Uh, what does that mean? It essentially means creating a working environment where uh, people are comfortable speaking up their mind, what they think about something, suggesting a radically different idea. You know, going back to your point, we're all linear thinkers. Well, if you encourage a culture of psychological safety, you're going to engender a culture when non-linear thinking can kind of come into it as well, where you can really question the status quo and convention. And I think that's really, really important. And then really for that long-term durable success and edge permanent right to win, managers have got to have a succession plan. You know, no one's figured out how to live forever. I guess Elon Musk's probably the, about the best person that's got a good chance of that with, with everything he's got going on. But until he until he figures out a way to live forever, portfolio managers are going to have to figure out a way of replacing them eventually. And so we like to work with firms that have, you know, clear succession plans in place or an idea for a succession plan. And we want firms that will implement the succession plan, not over months or years, but over decades. You know, we have one of our managers at the moment, I, I, I won't say which one, but they've had a 20 year succession plan in place that's, you know, effectively been successfully implemented. Think about that for a second. They've been 
focused on a succession plan as long as I've had a career pretty much to date. And if you do those things and then you reward people for their work and you, you know, wash, rinse and repeat that year after year after year, those are some of the ingredients. What I will say, everything I just rattled off there is extraordinarily hard to find and very few people do any, if you know, most of that, but those, those are the key ingredients. The happy ETF, and you have two of them, H-A-P-Y and H-A-P-I. You've partnered with Dan Ariely on this, who, who's a world-renowned behavioral economist. He's the author of Predictably Irrational, and he's a professor at Duke. And what's interesting about this, and I, I think everyone understands this idea of ESG and, and this, it's, I don't know if it came out of a McKinsey paper at one point or so, or Harvard, but it was this idea that companies with great corporate culture actually do succeed. And so it's kind of sparked this whole movement around ESG and, and trying to find companies, you know, beyond obviously the environmental concerns and other things. But now you've somehow taken this culture aspect and quantified it or, or created a factor out of it called the human capital factor. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about what goes into this factor and, and how you came about developing it with Dan. Yeah, this is a really been a fascinating project for a couple of years that we've been working on with Dan Ariely very, very interesting author, researcher, thinker of our times. The ESG has become a bit of a buzz phrase and now it's more likely got a bad reputation. So let me describe what the factor is and you know what the hypothesis is behind it and why we've backed it and why we've invested in it and why clients are investing in it. So business leaders across the world in different industries, in different cultures will say the following statement, our most important asset is what? our people. And I think they say it generally because they believe it. And I think it's because it's true. And if you look at investing and you look at accounting, people are not recorded on the balance sheet as an asset, right? They go through the income statement as a cost every single year. There's been a lot of academic work done on the valuable of intangible assets as investors, right? There, there's been so much ink spilt on, you know, value doesn't work anymore because price to book has underperformed. Well, yeah, price to book isn't value. That's the problem with that approach. But if you start to take a value factor and adjust for some of the more intangibles that are really important for businesses like brand, like R&D or human capital, are you going to get a fuller picture of, of value? And there's been, again, a lot of work done on, on R&D and the value of brand. So I won't go into that. Well, there hasn't been much research around yet because it's so hard to measure is human capital, the value of human capital. But my, my hypothesis would be if you think human capital is important and you don't think it's recorded as an asset on a balance sheet and it should be, and you can figure out a way to quantify it as an investor, that's going to give you incremental information that's going to be valuable to potentially generating strong returns. So, at, you know, that at a 30,000 foot level. That's kind of what you have to believe. And if listeners don't believe it, it's absolutely fine. But I, you know, I, I believe that very, very strongly. But then it's like, well, how do you measure it? And the, um, the old adage of like, measure what matters, not what's easy comes to mind. And I think that's why there's been so little work done on this. So I wouldn't have a hope of being able to measure this myself, but we found and partnered with Dan Ariely at Duke University. You mentioned him. He's the James B. Duke professor of psychology and behavioral economics. And he has spent his life studying and experimenting on people, why we make decisions the way that we do, why we're all a little bit less rational and would care to admit. 
And he's done that with a focus on understanding what motivates us in the workplace. And he's consulted to, you know, Fortune 500 companies that have come to him and said, how do we improve the efficiency or the output of our workers? And then he'll run various tests of, you know, here's the A group, here's the B group, here's the C group. You know, actually what things improve motivation and improve output. And now, about six years ago, he set up a firm called Irrational Capital, one of my favorite you know, research firms, Irrational Capital, in terms of the names that I've come across. And he set out to empirically measure this statistically in aggregate for public companies. And so what he's done with, you know, again, comes down to data. And I, I think data and technology has been kind of a bit recurring theme today. And there's things that you can just measure now today that you couldn't have measured 10 years ago. And this is definitely a good example of that. So through a combination of proprietary data and public data and think kind of sentiment data from Glassdoor on the public data, they're able to measure, if you like, the sentiment and engagement and motivation for employees at publicly listed companies, um, which is really important because you need to kind of have an idea of what actually matters from a motivation perspective. And, and so designing the factors, actually designing the things that you want to measure that you think are important to then aggregate into a factor that represents the human capital factor, you know, businesses with great corporate cultures that ultimately we think are going to outperform over the future. Like there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, a good example. You know, if I said to you, does compensation matter in um, motivation? The answer is that you would normally get would be like, well, yeah, of course it does. That's a stupid question, but it matters in a different way than you might think. And what they've actually found out is it's not the level of compensation that matters. It's the perception of fairness with compensation. If people feel like they're being compensated fairly, that is the more motivating factor that actually the level, you know, that people are being, being paid. And so you can take that, if you like, little um, nugget and with, with data, you can kind of create a sub factor and then you can identify there's about 30 to 40 of these and then you can aggregate them all together to create a human capital factor score. Give one more example, because we talked about it earlier, psychological safety. You know, there's a reason that we look for that in managers because we know through the data, through Dan, that that's really important to producing outcomes. That generally businesses that have employee bases with a high degree of psychological safety do better over the long run. And so we partnered with Irrational Capital who, if you like, do the measuring. And then what we've done is we've launched an ETF that tracks these human capital indices. And we have two and we've filed for a third that's doing this in small cap. That will be out in April. And, you know, we think it's a new investment factor. The most simplified definition or description I'd give is imagine in, uh, instead of taking an X-ray, you could take an MRI scan of kind of corporate culture and you could kind of look into with great precision what people are feeling and thinking about how, where they work. That's just really good information and we've made it investable and, um, you know, it, it's resonating in the marketplace. It resonates with me as a, as a former kind of scientist and scientific thinker. And it's definitely, you know, it's forward looking. And I do see that if you can do that well, there would be a clear alpha edge. That means that you could produce better outcomes in the market if you do it with, you know, discipline and, and world-class execution, which we believe we've got. But it's a, it's a fascinating uh, subject matter. Well, we've highlighted, like you said, a lot of amazing managers throughout this conversation. And you've just had this incredible career where you've been able to interact with a lot of 
the most talented people in this industry. And I know at one point you were actually able to spend over two hours with Bill Gross right after his infamous exit from PIMCO. And I'm really curious to know a little bit more about those couple of hours you spent with Bill and what you took away from it. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, I thought it'd be fun to kind of just see if you could share your time over those two hours with Bill Gross, what impact it made on you early on, and maybe what you saw in a great manager like Bill. If we're talking about idiosyncratic, right? What did you see from him that you uh, maybe have seen in others or that was unique to him? Anything you want to share about that would be really interesting to us. There's uh, so many lessons in this. So I, was, I lived in London at the time, and I remember coming out of a manager meeting in London. It was a Friday afternoon, and Someone said, Bill Gross has left PIMCO. And I thought, I looked at my watch to see if it was April, to see if it was April 1st and an April Fool's joke, but it wasn't. It was September. And so my initial reaction to that was, you know, dumbfounded like the world. And then they said, and he's joining Janice Henderson. And I was like, what? And so it was a big shock at the time. It was Friday afternoon in London and a busy weekend later with many strings pulled on Tuesday morning at 7 a.m., I was meeting Bill in his new office, stepping out of the elevator and he, you know, his tie was draped around and I, it was his, his first meeting on his first day as his new employer. And so it was, you know, business wise, really just day late, later after he'd left Pinco. And he was in re very reflective mood. And, you know, we got to spend, it was me and a colleague, my former colleague, Ted Dimmick at the time, we got to spend two hours unplugged with him, talking to him about, you know, what happened at PIMCO, what he's looking to do now. And he was in a very like lucid, philosophical, kind of clear-minded framework and, you know, talked openly. And I, I, I won't go into all of the kind of the ink that's been spilled at PIMCO, but my biggest takeaway it was a funny one. It was like, at the end of the day, we're all just people, like even Bill Gross. And Bill, I left that meeting feeling sorry for him um, because what he told us like shocked me. What he told us was all the years at, he was at PIMCO, surrounded by these amazing colleagues. And there's some brilliant people at PIMCO, brilliant thinkers and investors and fixed income. But he never leveraged them. He'd never used them. He'd never create this network with them and he'd never built like meaningful relationships with them. And he'd always been a bit of a loner there. And he said it was only really in his last six months where he began to get to know some of these people. And here he was talking to us in this office building, you know, 200 yards or so away from Pimco's office. He was there on his own. There was some wires hanging from the ceiling. There was a box of donuts and the coffee box on the desk. And there was a guy in the background setting up his Bloomberg terminal and he was all alone. And I just felt really sorry for him that despite everything he'd done in his job, it kind of, it ended up with like nothing. He was surrounded by no one. And actually what happened in time was those people, that team he had around him were, was a big part of the fuel of the success of PIMCO. And he just wasn't able to appreciate it or make the most of it. And, um, yeah, so I just sort of made a promise to myself then that I wouldn't want to fall into, fall into that mistake myself. Even a really successful, you know, multi-billionaire investor like that can, can kind of end up with deep regrets and end up alone. And then obviously at Janice Henderson, it didn't work out and he ended up leaving uh, a few years later and PIMCO have you know, still gone on and done very, very well. But it was, um, it was probably the highlight like day of my career because it was the 
the story, the thing that was happening in the markets around the world. And I don't know if you remember, but you know, people thought, is this going to bring down fixed income markets? This is the liquidity event that we've all been fearful of. And it was just really unique. And then I was able to go and see PIMCO for two or three hours straight after that. So I came out of that morning. It was a long day, but that sort of triangulation between what was going on at PIMCO, what Bill had said, what was happening in the markets, what journalists were saying, and really just having that kind of fast rock front row seat to that moment in time was, was, uh, yeah, it was really special. I really appreciate you sharing that with us because while we're all here interested in learning about how to be a great investor, how to understand the markets better and all these things, I mean, we really also want to learn how to live a great life. And what you shared just then is a reminder that, you know, the money and the success and the performance, et cetera, is not everything and probably far from it. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's a, it's a really interesting reminder. It's always even more it's a little bit harder when it comes from someone like that, like a multi-billionaire who you can uh, you can glean these kind of lessons from. So before we let you go, Christoph, and thank you so much for everything you shared today. This has been just such a fun and really fascinating conversation. I'd like to give you an opportunity to hand off to the listeners where they can learn more about you. We talked about a couple of the ETFs, but there are more. I mean, Wall Street Journal just listed the Dividend Growth Leaders ETF as the best active dividend ETF. So I'm, I'm putting a plug in there for you because, you know, I just want I want people to understand and have these resources. So please direct them wherever you want them to go to learn more about you or to Harbor. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Trey. It's a real pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope your listeners enjoyed most of what they heard or at least learned a nugget or two, something that's going to be helpful for them. If people want to find out more, they're probably the best thing to do is just go to our website, which is harborcapital.com. And that's harbor with no U, spelled the American way, which my English friends always tease me about as a U in England. So harborcapital.com. You can also follow us on um, LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter with uh, the handle is at Gleich Christoph. And look, I, I hope people go and have a, a click and explore and like what they see. Well, thank you so much again, Christoph. I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Thank you. All right, everybody, that's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, please leave us a review. It really helps the show. If you want to reach out directly, you can find me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And don't forget to check out all of the amazing resources we've built for you at theinvestorspodcast.com. You can also simply Google TIP Finance and it should pop right up. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.